You're listening to Once a Raider, Always a Raider on the Raiders Podcast Network. Here's your host, JT the Brick. Hey there, Raider Nation. I'm JT, and welcome to Episode 3 of Once a Raider, Always a Raider. Today on the podcast, we continue telling the story of Tom Flores, with our focus in this episode being Tom's incredible life after football and his wait to get the call to Canton. Assisting us to do that is Paul Gutierrez from ESPN, a man who not only covers the silver and black on a day-to-day basis, but has also been a vocal advocate and supporter of Tom's quest to get into the Hall of Fame. We thank Paul for his candor, honesty, and continued support of Coach Flores. So please enjoy our conversation with Paul Gutierrez. Welcome to Once a Raider, Always a Raider, Episode 3. Paul Gutierrez from ESPN is kind enough to join us as we talk about the life and career of the great Tom Flores. Life after football, the wait. Paul, thanks so much. You're so passionate about this gentleman, Tom Flores. Great to have you. Thanks, JT. Yeah, it is definitely a, a labor of love uh, to to follow this and, and to cover it and to kind of advocate for him getting to the Hall of Fame and, and to to see him actually getting ready to go in and to talk to him, hear the excitement in his voice. It, 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 it makes it all worth it, and, and especially for him and his family. How did you build the relationship with him? When did it start? I think, you know, it's funny because in a professional sense, it was definitely when I came on the beat. And I've been covering the Raiders in, in one way or another since 2005 when I when I went up to the Bay Area. The first time I actually met the man, uh, it was my high school graduation uh, senior trip, June, uh, June 20th of 1988. We're coming back from Hawaii, flying to LAX. I, I'm from Barstow, Southern California. And, you know, I had grown up. I was a big Raider fan when they moved to LA uh, when I was 12 years old. So anyway, we're, we're standing there at LAX waiting for the, the luggage to come out. And and all of a sudden, I start seeing all these uh, Raider duffel bags. All these silver and black bags are coming through. And I look up, and there's Tom Flores standing right next to me. And I, I'm stunned. And I wish I could tell you that I had this great story of something I said to him or a, a photo I took of him. No, I just stood there slack-jawed like, oh, my gosh, that's, that's, that's Tom Flores. Looking back on it, I'm the same age today as he was that day at the, at the, uh, Incredible. the carousel. So I, I look at it, and... Um, it's just kind of one of those things that just kind of comes full circle. So I've told him this story numerous times. I'm sure he's flown first class to Hawaii and back and, and didn't know who I was. But but that's the first time I met him. And, and just over the years, covering the team, talking to him, trying to get a sense of who he is and what he's represented to people, that's kind of how you build a relationship in a professional sense. It's a great relationship. And we're talking about his life after football and the weight and why it took so long. And I want to begin. His last season as Raider head coach was in 1987. He took the Seahawks uh, president GM job in 1989, and there wasn't a lot of on-field success there. How much did the Seahawks years hold him back from gaining enshrinement into the hall? Yeah, it, it gave the voters who weren't on board already, it gave them all the ammunition they needed. Because, as you know, it, when, when, they, when, they, when somebody comes up as a finalist, they, they talk, they have the discussion in the room. And, and what I was told from some of the selectors that were there in the room was that was a huge reason. And John Clayton, who covered those Seahawks teams, he was one of uh, Tom Flores' biggest advocates. And he told the voters, at least this is what he told me, he told everyone else in the room, you cannot hold that against him because he was working for the worst ownership in the history of professional sports. And Clayton would say, I know because I was there and I covered it. So 
it, it was a major roadblock for him, mostly because a lot of people already looked and said, oh, well, you know, with Tom Flores, he, he had loaded teams and, and Al Davis was the real architect of that. And, and some of that argument worked against John Madden as well initially. Mm-hmm. But John Madden became such a cottage industry with, with Monday Night Football, the announcing, the game, that, that that all superseded it. But with Tom, there was a weird kind of reluctance to embrace him because he did have that success, but the last few years, 86 and 87, uh, petered out with the Raiders, and then he had no success at all with the Seahawks. So it gave people who weren't already on board a lot of ammunition to hold against him. I find this fascinating because if he just would have walked away from the game with all the success he had, because at that point he had the four Super Bowls, yeah. one as the backup in Kansas City, one with Madden, and the two as the head coach, he was still a young enough man in football years as a coach to have that honor, to be a GM and to be involved that way. So I understand why he didn't walk away from the game. Well, let's go back. If he did, right. would we be talking about him in the Hall of Fame 20 years ago? Potentially, because you know, it's it's funny. I think Raiders.com actually put up a, a snippet of the speech from, from Tom's retirement from the Raiders in January of 88, where Al Davis himself said, this sounds like what I'm talking about, a Hall of Fame induction. It's not. Maybe it will be one day. Yeah, I, I, I do kind of play that game sometimes. Mm-hmm. But, but in talking to Tom over the years, and I've written it, Tom was burned out after 87. You know, the, the Raiders dropped, what, four straight games to end the 86 season and fall out of the playoffs after having, being the number one seed the previous year. 87, the strike happens. They've got to basically have three different training camps because they got the regular training camp, the replacement player training camp. Uh, then they got to bring the guys back. And then, oh, yeah, a good problem to have. But Bo Jackson showing up, now you got to rebuild your offense. And you didn't have him from the start either. So he was really worn down. I think I'm at liberty here to say that there was a part of him that wished he could have just taken a year off and then come back. But, you know, that, that's, that wasn't acceptable at the time. So he decided to retire. When he was ready to come back, guess what? He came back and he went to Seattle as the first minority GM and president of a franchise as well. So there's a lot of barriers, a lot of things he did in a pioneering spirit. Didn't have the success up there like we spoke about earlier, but... Again, a lot of things he did, he was the first to do. I've talked to so many of his former players about the years they practiced in Oakland and played in L.A. and to go on and win a Super Bowl, what that meant. Think about that today. And we're, you think about obstacles. Think about what he did. I talked to Coach about his wife and the kids are back home. He's a dad. And he's a commuting head coach taking a team on a Super Bowl run. Who's done that? And, I mean, a lot of coaches have had obstacles you talk about the commuting coach to do that. I think that's part of his legacy. Oh, definitely. Because, you know, he wins a Super Bowl in his second year as a head coach at any level, right? And, that's the, and they're the first wild card team to do it in 1980. Uh, and then they're in the midst of that move from, from you know, they're practicing in, in Oakland and, and flying down to L.A. for games and, and, and living out of a suitcase, living in a, in, a, in a hotel. So that is something else that probably should have been put on his resume for, for the selectors to think about and chew on for a while as well. You know, but, but the other big thing about, about Tom is he's never been and never will be and never has been uh, a guy that's going to stand there and pump his chest out and yeah. thump his chest and say, hey, look at all these things I did. That's just not his personality. That goes back to his days as a player, as the Iceman. He's just going to do his job, keep his nose to the grindstone, and let everybody else try to figure it out along the way. And thankfully, you know, it, it finally happened. After Seattle, Tom had a second act as a broadcaster that began in 1997. 
That's what I got to know him well. And the importance of seeing him and hearing a Mexican-American voice on the broadcast, what did that mean to you? Personally, I mean, like I said, it goes back to the first time I, I, I met him, right, at, at LAX in, in 1988. You know, growing up, full transparency, as a little, little kid growing up in Barstow, California, I was a Rams fan. Vince Ferragamo was my all-time favorite player. But my dad was always a Raider fan, so he was always trying to impart that, instill that in me, right, because of the, the, the renegade, the rebels, uh, going against the grain, blue collar. Well, when I'm turning 12 years old, and you're starting to feel yourself a little bit as a young man. All of a sudden, the Raiders are moving to my backyard in L.A. And then I look up and I see not just Latinos, not just Hispanic, but Mexican-American head coach, Mexican-American quarterback and Jim Plunk. I'm like, oh, this is what my dad's talking about. These are guys, and I wrote a story recently, and, and it really reflected my thoughts too. These were guys that looked like me. These are guys that spoke like me. These are guys that really were me you know, in a sense of being a fan at that time, a very young fan. So it meant the world that, that somebody who, you know what, that looks like my grandpa Nick. And it really just kind of stuck that the same mannerisms, the same hairstyle, the same, you know, uh, speech patterns. I was like, I don't think we're related, Tom, but, but you know, there's something there. And, and the same thing with Jim, too. So they, these guys were icons to a very specific subset of Latinos, Hispanics, Mexicans, Americans in the Southwest. And, and it's funny, in a story I recently did, I went back and watched the final moments of Super Bowl 15. And Dick Enberg, you know, ahead of his time, I guess, by the way, because he described Tom Flores. He says, that man right there on the sidelines, Chicano, grew up in, in the, working in the fields in Central California, grew up and had a great athletic career, now probably the biggest moment of his professional life. That, I think, kind of encapsulates it all on the personal level. Like I said, these were guys like us. This was somebody to look up to and go, oh, okay, so, so I guess if, if I wanted to and if I had the talent, I guess I could do something like that. You were on the field at a lot of these games since you've been covering the beat, and to see him on the broadcast and come down before the game and be on the field and talk to his former players that he coached and talk to the opposition and then to bring that knowledge up in the booth yeah. and then to oversee the game as a color analyst, was amazing. I think Raider fans really appreciated the knowledge that they had when they were tuning into their radios in their car, knowing that the great Tom Flores was on the broadcast. Uh, just impressive because he, he carried on who he was, not only as a player, as a coach, as a broadcaster, as now a Hall of Famer. It's, it's one of those things where, where I believe the Raiders do things right as they take care of their alumni. And as Mark Davis has, has told me, and he's told everyone, the strength of this organization is its alumni. So when you have someone like a Tom Flores who represents so much to so many people, there's nothing more you can do than actually just enjoy it and, and, and take advantage of it, really. When do you believe was the first time that Tom really got consideration for the Hall of Fame? It's, it's, it was a long time coming. And I think like we spoke about earlier, it, the, the years in Seattle really kind of derailed that talk. From a personal perspective, I think once the Hall of Fame's voting body got a little bit more diverse mm -hmm. and a little younger and realize that, hey, if, if we want to be as inclusive as possible and tell the story of the NFL and professional football in totality, you can't tell that story without mentioning a Tom Flores. So I think when there's guys, I mean, I'm 51 years old right now. I still consider myself a young man, but I know I, I, this is a young man's game, so to speak. But I, I think once that voting body got a little more diverse, got a little younger, and started realizing that, hey, we're, you know, this is, this is a tale that needs to be told. I think that's when it happened. It's been within the past decade or so. Let's talk about his optimism. There was so many years he didn't get the call, yeah. and he knew he wasn't going to get the call because it, there wasn't momentum 
and his former players were getting in. And then there were other former players who were not getting in, like Cliff Branch, who we've talked about. And to see him so optimistic going forward, he didn't bring it up much. He didn't do a lot of radio on it. He didn't do a lot of columns on it. He really stayed in the background. Why do you think that was? Was that part of his humble upbringing? That's just who he is, Mm -hmm. the Iceman. And to be a finalist three years in a row and to finally get that call, I know the first year that he was a finalist and he's sitting in the room in, in uh, Atlanta, I believe, waiting for the knock that never came. Uh, he and Don Shul, uh, Don Coriel actually were, were the finalists. I was told that a lot of the voters are told, hey, if you have a hard time whittling this list down, just know that next year we're going to have this blue ribbon committee with two spots specifically for coaches. It was like, okay, well, maybe it'll come next year. Then they had the blue ribbon committee, and I don't know what they did. <laughs> they, they forgot about Coriel and Flores, who were already finalists the year before. So it was the third time was literally the charm for him. So it's just, you know, like I said, he's not a guy that was ever going to thump his chest. Now, if somebody asked him about it, he was going to give you an answer. And as the years went by, he got a little more honest. He got a little more raw with it. You know, he's never really going to criticize anybody on the record, but he's going to let you know how he felt. And, and he came real close to just saying, you know what, it's never going to happen. Because he was really, really excited about that Blue Ribbon Committee. And when that didn't happen, that, that hurt him a lot. Was there ever a point where you didn't think he'd get in after that Blue Ribbon? I did. I thought that was it. I thought that was it. But then when they came up with the special, the special, uh, it's not a committee, the special just kind of, they were going to do a coach regardless. I was like, okay, well, let's see. If, they, if it goes back to the normal voting body that had him as a finalist two years prior, they'll do the right thing because he's still here to enjoy it. And I know that committee caught a lot of flack for waiting until after Ken, uh, Ken Stabler passed right. to put him in. So he wasn't able to enjoy it. And in many talks with Mark Davis, there's a lot of you know, controversy about the families of deceased members getting in, not getting the full, you know, the jackets, uh, the rings, right. things like that. Again, just you can, you can belabor the point forever and, and argue and scream at the clouds. And why did it take so long? It happened. It finally happened. And he's here to enjoy it. I want to stay with the Blue Ribbon panel because when David Baker walked out on the set of Fox with Jimmy Johnson and on the set with Bill Cowher at CBS, I got calls and texts from Hall of Famers who I know who were furious. They thought that they turned that into a made-for-TV event. And Coach didn't have that mojo at that time working with one of those jobs. And I really thought that discounted what that meant. It was surprises. You don't do it that way. There's a certain protocol I don't have a problem now with David Baker knocking on a door and going from city to city. And part of that, to me, is interesting. But Jimmy Johnson won two. And Jimmy Johnson didn't beat the coaches that Tom Flores beat. But he got two. Bill Cowher, I don't want to make this about who shouldn't be in. Tony Dungy, Bill Cowher, some of the other names, some of the coaches who have none. Marv Levy is a head coach. But I just thought that that was a way that really hurt coach to do it that way. He doesn't get in on the blue ribbon. And then you do it that way on TV, knowing that he's sitting in Palm Desert in his home and has to watch it and hear about it that way. I I talked to him real uh, shortly thereafter, and um, he was hurt. And because of the way, I think he's whenever the first person was announced, I believe it might have been Cower was announced first. He said, I'm not in. I didn't get it because he knew the the drama was building. Okay, let's go to Jimmy Johnson on live TV now. That Blue Ribbon Committee, to me, uh, was created. It was supposed to... uh, fixed the log jam. Mm-hmm. Instead, it created an even bigger one, which is a reason they created that special category. That was the word I was searching for earlier. Yeah. Uh, the special category for just the coach. And, you know, it's like the, the senior candidates. I think 99.9% of the people that get in on that are nominated get in eventually. So when you saw that 
that Tom was in that. I was like, okay, they are going to do right by him, I think, because there was still some some resistance to him in the room, I'm told. And again, a lot of it goes back to Seattle. A lot of it goes to the Al Davis influence. A lot of it is just ignorance in my my humble, not so humble opinion, actually. So I know he was hurt by that Blue Ribbon Committee and what happened. He wasn't the only one. So Tom finally got the knock on the door. What did you say to him when you found out he got in and you had that first conversation? It was interesting because I'd been covering this thing. I've, I've been banging the drum for him for a decade at least and calling him and writing stories and you know advocating and going on the radio and, and things like that. So I was, I, was, uh, I was fortunate enough to he allowed me to break it. I talked to him on the phone the day that they were going to make the announcement, and he, he let me break it. And the, I wouldn't say unbridled joy, but just relief. He seemed kind of stunned. But, but at the same point, when he finally let me know and let me break it, he had already known himself for a week. Because, yeah. you know, this, these things are all made for TV. Made for TV. And they go to his home and knock on the door. So that would have been the most genuine reaction. He was getting ready for the world to know that it happened. And it seemed more relief at that point. And again, I was just honored and thrilled to be given, you know, to be tapped to, to go ahead and, and put that out there. So it was, it was, um, it was really neat for, for no, you know, for lack of a better nice. term. Are there other Paul, uh, Tom Flores is out there who have fell through the crack and just haven't had their chance yet. And they've waited too long and we're dealing with other Tom Flores in the future. Well, that's what's interesting about it is I did a story last week on ESPN.com about Tom's influence uh, generations later, mind you, uh, on, on Latino coaches in college. Ron Rivera, huge, huge fan of, of Tom Flores. And, and in talking with Ron, it was interesting because you know, he actually played when Tom was, was still coaching. Yeah. And, and, and Ron was 2-0 against Tom with the Bears. You know, the, and it was, Tom, it was Tom's last game with the Raiders when, when the Bears beat beat him in L.A., and then there's that infamous 1984 game at Soldier Field oh. where bodies are being carried Bo- off the, the body field. body bag game. Yeah, yeah. Ray, Ray Guy almost had to play quarterback for, for the Raiders in that game. And, but what, what impressed him the most was that Tom had been the first Latino quarterback in pro football history. That's where his, his mind was as, as a player. The other co- college coaches I spoke to, including Marcus Arroyo here at UNLV, there's seven in, in Division I college. Three of them are in the Mountain West. Andy Avalos in, in Boise State, Danny Gonzalez at New Mexico, and, and Marcus Arroyo at uh, UNLV. And, you know, are, are they on the way or are they guys that like college? The sense I got was they like being college guys. But they all, to a man, spoke about what an idol, what an icon, what an inspiration Tom was to them, even if a handful of them weren't even born when Tom won his first ring, you know, let, as a head coach of the Raiders, let alone his fourth in 1983. And that was the cool thing about the story was talking to Danny Gonzalez from New Mexico was, you know, he's eight years old, maybe when the Raiders won Super Bowl 18, but he remembers he had a cousin named Casey Flores. So of course the, the, the pride comes in like, Oh man, that's your cousin. That's your uncle. That's that, that you you guys got to be related somehow. So, so what Danny told me was when, when Tom got the word that he was going in the hall of fame, of course he wanted to reach out to his cousin Casey, but his cousin Casey had passed away a few years ago. So he did the next best thing called Casey's mom and told him, told her, uh, I'm sure Casey's looking down smiling right now because his cousin Tom is going in the Hall of Fame. What I find fascinating here when we talk about first Latino quarterback, imagine being a Latino quarterback today or a coach and knowing what that journey is like because Tom Flores had a big roadblock getting into the Hall of Fame. He had to wait too long. But there's another Latino quarterback in Jim Plunkett, right. and they're tied together. And Tom won his Super Bowls with Jim Plunkett. 
And you know a lot about that relationship, too, and what those two men meet to, mean to each other and mean yeah. to the game of football. Yeah, and, and that's one thing, too, in, in the conversation with Ron Rivera, which I thought was interesting, was he was relieved and happy for Tom, but he wants to start the campaign now for Jim. And he knows what Jim's stats look like, but, you know, I have an upcoming book with Lincoln Kennedy coming. And we talk about the Hall of Fame and, and, and Raider snubs and things like that. And we do, a, we do a section in the book where we do a blind stat test. And you put up Joe Namath's stats next to Jim Plunkett's stats. And you'd look at them, and if you didn't know anybody, you'd say, right. well, neither one of these guys deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. But then you look at the impact. I don't think anybody's going to say Broadway Joe doesn't belong in Canton. But when you look at the impact of Jim Plunkett as well and the, the racial barriers he broke and, and the, the comeback story of all comeback stories with him – he deserves more than a sniff as well. And um, I'm, I'm sure Tom would tell you the same thing. And, and there's, there's, because it goes beyond breaking barriers. It goes to, to what I said. Can you tell the story of the NFL without mentioning this man? No. Well, okay, let's, let's have that discussion. Let's talk about Tom's impact on the game. How would you define it? Trailblazer. Uh, it's funny because you don't look at, you look at somebody like a Don Coriel, and boom, Eric Coriel. You talk about the, 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 the air attack from the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, and, and the things that you still see today. You don't really make that argument for Tom other than the, the trails that he blazed and the pride that he brought to people. And it goes back again to what I said earlier, that you can't tell the story of, the, of professional football, the NFL, without mentioning Tom Flores because of those, those barriers. And, you know, it's, it's real interesting to look back on the whole thing and, and, and see when he was doing these things. And as a young kid looking up, like I said earlier, that's somebody that looks like me. That, to me, is, is the ultimate there. But when you also talk to other Raider Hall of Famers, Marcus Allen and Howie Long, they both say the same thing. So many people give those guy, other guys credits for X's and O's, but it's not just about that. It's about managing people. It's about being a player's coach. And when you look at that roster, all the wild characters that were on those teams, football characters with character, as John Gruden would say now. Back then, you got to deal with the Ted Hendricks, a Marcus Allen, a Lyle Alzado, a Howie Long, a Lester Hayes, and get that into a cohesive unit. Not only make it a cohesive unit, but to win games and to win championships. That was Tom Flores' biggest strength, I believe. And a lot of those guys talk about that. That's incredible because I talked to Frank Hawkins about that. And he said when Tom would roll up his game plan in his hand and pound his hand, you knew he was serious because he let these guys have so much fun. So did Madden. They were Mavericks. The players went right. out and they came home late, but they were ready to play like hell on Sunday. I think that's a completely different discussion for another time on how he kept those guys in check. We're in Vegas now and there's casinos and there's gambling and everybody worries about what's it going to be like for a player to live in Vegas. Take, talk about L.A., yeah. And Oakland and the fact that they already won for Al Davis in the Madden years and some guys were coming over, some guys were aging out, and they all knew Tom Flores for being under Madden. And then he gets new players who comes in, and he loved those Mavericks who came yeah. in. I guess, did that have to do with Coach Flores' grooming from Al Davis and John Madden to be able to handle those personalities? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's part of the Raiders' DNA, right? Right. I mean, that's, that's one thing that Mark Davis still talks about is, is, is the Raiders' DNA. And, and the fact that, again, Tom Flores was the first quarterback in Raiders' history. He, pre, he predates Al Davis with the he Raiders. Does. So that was a huge part of it. The fact that, that Tom was also a player. Oh, wait, he was a quarterback, so he definitely knows what's going on. And, and as he told me recently, he said, you know, we let these guys do – what they needed to do, dot, 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 within reason. 
because, you know, you go back to Super Bowl 15. I mean, Bourbon Street, you know, and, and you got John Matuzak who's out there constantly breaking curfew. But his great line was, oh, no, 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 I wasn't breaking curfew. I was out checking on guys to make sure they weren't breaking curfew. Well, you know, that's that's the mentality. And then meanwhile, the Eagles with Dick Vermeil, uh, you know, they're tighter than than uh, tight height because, you know, they're going to they're the rule followers and I can do anything. And, and it showed up on that Sunday. So that's, again, part of the legacy of Tom Flores is knowing just how much to allow be- before kind of, you know, he wasn't going to come down and start hammering guys over the head because he knew what his roster was because he was a player himself. What was Tom Flores' impact on the Raider fans, the Raider Nation? Especially, you know, you go to a Raider game and, and Raider Nation is all-inclusive, right? Uh, but you know, I've covered the NFL now like I said, since 2005 in one way or another, and and I don't think I've ever seen a more diverse fan base anyways. And when it's part of the Raider DNA and you have the the Latino fans, the Mexican-Americans, especially from from the West Coast, that's, you know, that's worth its weight in gold. That's where, again, it goes back, and I keep saying the same line, one of us, guys like us. And I think that is, I don't think, I know, that's, that's a major part of the impact of the influence, of the allure of the Latino fan, especially in on the West Coast, towards the Raiders because of the success of Tom Flores and, you know, Jim Plunkett as well. Let's talk about his impact in the organization. Because this organization now, as we broadcast and record this, we're in this state-of-the-art, unbelievable facility, arguably the best in sports and Allegiant Stadium. He was a building block along the way from Al Davis, Carol Davis, now to Mark Davis. Talk about that. Yeah, and, and with Tom, you don't want to say that he was a forgotten guy because he was always there. He was just always in the background, always part of, again, the DNA, some of the mortar that helped build these buildings, right? So what I find fascinating and, and kind of uh, reassuring is to talk to him about looking at these facilities, looking at these buildings, looking at the stadium. And he said when he first went into Allegiant, uh, he probably lost, he lost count of how many times he said, wow. Because he's talking about his, he remembers his very first training camp, uh, Santa Cruz in 1960. There's 11 quarterbacks on the roster, and they couldn't fit them all in a picture, uh, team picture on on uh, the first day of training camp. Then he goes to when they their first uh, training facility in Alameda. They called it the uh, the dungeon because the the field was literally sinking into the bay. Uh, he said if receivers were running down and outs, they were really going down and out because you couldn't see them anymore because they went down over the horizon. So to go from that to this, and for for Tom to have not just witnessed it, but to have been a part of it, again, part of what his story is about, part of his legacy, part of his weight. You've had some great access with former players who played for him. We know how you feel about this. What about some of those players that you talk about? You talked about it with Coach Gruden. What is the response to them when you ask them about Tom Flores? I know you asked it at a press conference recently right here in the facility. Yeah, with a lot of the, the guys that played for him. Lester Hayes is really, really yeah. outspoken. I mean, I remember seven years ago talking to him before Tom really started getting a lot of recognition for it, and he, he called it just foul. And, and you know Lester, when, when Lester goes on a, on a tangent, he'll go. He said it's just the, the most unjust omission, you know, and, and he starts breaking down everything that he's done. And, again, he wasn't, he wasn't his position coach. He was the head coach. Cliff Branch was the, of the same mind, and Cliff Branch, that was his position coach. And, and to me, one of the more heartbreaking stories is two years ago, Tom Flores is sitting in, in the stands, uh, you know, watching Kevin Mawai go in, a player that he drafted for Seattle. And, and the camera zooms in on Tom, and, and you can see that he's kind of tearing up. Well, what had happened was during the, the ceremony or a couple days before, he got a text from, from Cliff 
Cliff was telling about this new Blue Ribbon Committee that, uh, you know, they're having specific spots for um, veteran players, specific spots for coaches. So, so Cliff texted him and said, Coach, you're in. And Tom looked at the text, put the phone away because he was in the middle of the, of the, uh, the ceremony. He said, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, respond later when I have a, more time to actually, you know, give a more thoughtful response. Well, he never got to it. The next day, he's sitting there at the, at the uh, enshrinement, and he gets a text. And he gets a call. He looks. It's Marcus Allen calling him. So well, that's interesting. Well, there's a break in the program. He picks it up, and it was Mark Sound who told him that Cliff Branch had passed away. So that's when it really hit him, and he said the response he wanted to give back to Cliff was, uh, I'm not in. We're in. We both should be in. And, of course, we know that Cliff now is, is, a, is the biggest snub uh, to not go into Canton for the Raiders. And, and uh, it, it's one of those strange things. Um, you know, you're happy, happy for Tom, but you're sad for Cliff kind of a thing, and you kind of just go that way. I want to wrap it up and stay on family, Raider family, but let's talk about Tom Flores' family, his lovely wife, Barbara, and the impact that she's had on this, being next to Tom yeah. like a rock, the kids, the grandkids, who will all be in Canton. This is a big deal because as we talked earlier about the commuting for Tom and all the time he was away, he's considered a brilliant husband and an amazing dad. Tell us a little about that. It, it's, it's rewarding, again, to have, have been able to chronicle the entire journey. I think when you talk to those that are the most affected beside him, it, it, it's, it's really mind-blowing because without the family, and Tom will be the first to tell you, without Barb's support throughout the years, he wouldn't be here. And he put it perfectly in a, in a recent Zoom call for, you know, press conference for his uh, Hall of Fame enshrinement. And he said, you know what? The cool thing is I, it's not just me going in. It's my players. It's my teammates. It's my family. We're all, get, we're all going in together, and we're all going to celebrate together as we should. Was the journey worth it for you? Because there were some tough times. There were some pauses as we talked about. As we wrap this up, does it feel fulfilling now? It took a lot longer than it should have, and you're a big part of this story here. How do you feel going into the enshrinement? Well, thanks for saying that. I don't know. It, it's, it's personal, but it's not. You know, I mean, I, I feel like any, any small modicum of – of, of effort that I put in helped make this happen. That, that's fine. That's great. That's not why I did it. I did it because he's deserving. What I'm gaining a lot of satisfaction out of on a personal level is, you know, Tom didn't, he, he was down a year ago at this time. And, and you could sense his energy was down. The last two times I've talked to him on the phone, his energy is up. He actually told me that he's got to pace himself, you know, because he's got some health issues that he's dealing with as well. But again, for him to actually physically be there and to enjoy it and for his family to be there with him, that, to me, is the most satisfying uh, thing of this whole journey. Once a Raider, always a Raider. Paul Gutierrez, thanks so much. This was fantastic. Thanks, J.D. A sincere thank you to Paul for being so generous with this time, and thank you to all of you who have listened, reviewed, shared, and supported the podcast since we debuted earlier this season. Make sure to join us for Episode 4 of Once a Raider, Always a Raider on October 22nd when we hear from the man himself, the subject of our first three chapters of the show, Tom Flores. I'm JT, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Once a Raider, Always a Raider. Make sure to download the official mobile app and visit Raiders.com history for more historical content. 